Good morning. Uh, happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, thank you guys for being here this morning. I, I feel the fact that it's a three-day weekend. Like, I just felt it in the atmosphere. I don't know if it's just me. Uh, it's like a little less excitement. Like, everybody's like, man, all the people that got to go out of town this week, and I'm stuck here at church. Uh, but I'm glad that you're here. I believe that this is going to be absolutely worth it for us. Uh, and then I hope that you're at the, the picnic later today. It's always a really, really good time. Both locations come together. Uh, and if you see someone at the picnic that wasn't here this morning, uh, you have my permission to, to call them out, okay? Um, but Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 21, uh, we only have two weeks left in the Gospel of Mark, uh, including this week. So next week will be the, the finishing of the Gospel of Mark which I know for some of you hopefully is sad. Uh, For others, uh, you're happy, okay? Uh, Where we're going from here is uh, the life of David. We're going to look at his life, and we're going to do an 11-week series on just some of the more more important things of King David's life. Uh, So we'll be there in in about three weeks. But this week, we get to look at, uh, and then next week, very familiar passages to us. But my prayer is that uh, God will give us fresh eyes, fresh ears to hear, fresh eyes to see, hearts to receive, stir our affections, uh, allow our minds to, to wrap around and understand in deeper ways that it would affect our, our lives and hearts in ways like it never has before. And so that's my prayer for the next couple of weeks. I, I believe that it is going to be extremely beneficial for us uh, to go through these texts. Uh, but Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 21, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to give you one. Uh, so there are Bibles in the lobby. That's our free gift to you. You can take one of those. Uh, the words will be on the screen as well, uh, but we'll get there in just a moment. But here's what I want you to think about. All right, I want you just to think for a moment about the cross. And when you think about the cross, I want you to think, what are the things that pop into my head? I won't ask you to yell them out this morning, but just when you think about the cross, what comes to mind? It could be more than one thing. Certainly when I think of it, I think about forgiveness and I think about torture. I think about um, just sorrow. I think about how gruesome it was. So there could be multiple things, darkness, shame, guilt. All of these things might pop into our minds. Uh, And then, of course, because we're in church and you're here, we also know that Jesus comes to mind, okay? When we think about the cross, and really, not even when we're just in church or if you're a religious person, like if you just walk around in our culture and really all around the world today, and you say, what do you think of when you think of the cross? All these other things might come up, but Jesus will also be mentioned, And and I want us to think just for a moment, why is he the only name that we think of when it comes to the cross? There are lots of different emotions, lots of feelings, lots of things, but, but Jesus is the only one that we think about, the only person, the only name that comes to mind. And crucifixion, of course, it was invented 500 years before Jesus by the Persians, and they used it as a capital punishment. And the Romans, when they took over, they really began to, to, to really take execution, crucifixion, to the highest extent. And they really tried to use the cross in three different ways. And so when Jesus comes to the cross, I want us to set our mind around this. The Romans really had three things in mind. And then the the Israelite people, the Jewish people, had something in mind as well on top of this. But the Romans would use crucifixion in three different ways. One, they wanted to bring maximum pain. So they took what the Persians were doing. And we'll see as we read our text this morning and we walk through the story just really simply. I just want to walk through the story this morning and bring up some theological implications of what we see. 
But as we walk through the story, it was extremely gruesome. They wanted to bring as much pain as they possibly could. Secondly, they didn't only want to bring pain, they wanted to bring shame. This was a public execution. It wasn't like we would think of a capital punishment today where it's kind of behind closed doors and just a few people are there. It, it was in front of everyone. They wanted the maximum amount of people to be present. It was a sport to people that were there. Uh, they would make bets. Uh, you can go to Jerusalem today and you can see on the ground near where they believe all of this took place. You can see things that look almost like tic-tac-toe boards and different ways that they would make bets and different games they would play over the people that would be crucified. So you would have games being played. You have people mocking the people who are being crucified and tortured and beaten. Uh, you have everybody cheering and jeering the people who are being executed. The family oftentimes would be present, and they're the only ones showing any kind of compassion, any kind of tears. Um, everybody, it's almost like a joyful event. Like when we think about it, and I had somebody come up after the, the first service and say, you know, it's one of those situations when we talk about the cross and execution where it's like the saddest event, but yet it's, it just brings so much joy and so much goodness to think about the implications of it. And certainly it was, when you just kind of think about what people were going through, it just, it boggles the mind at how we can do that to one another. It's so gruesome, and so it brought so much pain, but then also so much shame. They wanted everybody to see it. They wanted everybody to take complete power away from the person who's being executed. But they also wanted to use it as a deterrent, and this was one of the, the byproducts of the first two things, pain and shame. It was to say, if you're hanging on a tree and somebody was, was committing treason against Rome, an insurrection, and they're trying to rise up a power of another people, then we're going to put them through the maximum pain and bring them the maximum shame so that you do not follow them. And the cross was to say, whatever this one believed, whatever this one did, whatever this one calls you to do, this will be you if you follow them. So these are the three things the Romans had in mind. They wanted to bring pain, shame, and it want, they wanted it to be a deterrent to anyone. This was Rome's way of having supreme power over anyone that would rise against them. For the Jews, they would have seen and acknowledged these things, and that's why the religious leaders wanted Jesus to go to the cross, to completely cut away any idea that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is king, that he is bringing about a kingdom, because if you hang on a cross, you go through pain and shame, and it is the maximum deterrent to everybody that would say, I will follow Jesus, because this is what would happen to you. You do not just take up your cross and follow him, but you would hang on one. That was the idea. But they also believed, and we read in the book of Deuteronomy, that anyone who hung on a cross was cursed. You are damned by God. You have done something in your life that God will not forgive. It doesn't matter how good you were, what you did. It doesn't matter if they found Jesus guilty of nothing. He could have been the perfect person, but to hang on a cross was damnation. It was to be completely cursed. And it was, again, a gruesome experience. Cicero, in fact, said this about the crucifixion. Crucifixion is the grossest, most hideous manner of execution. A Roman citizen should not even talk about it. It was so bad that Roman citizens were not put on crosses. They were not executed in this way. 
through crucifixion. It hurt and was so painful that the word excruciating actually comes from crucifixion. And Cicero acknowledged that, and he was like, a Roman citizen should not even talk about it, let alone be there, let alone witness it. That would have been his opinion. Uh, But it also was something that they wouldn't do to a Roman citizen. They also very rarely throughout history ever put a female on the cross. They believed that it was just too gruesome for them. And, And history tells us in many different cases, when a woman actually was put on the cross, they would actually put her face towards the cross so that everyone did not have to see the pain and excruciation that she went through. This is what the crucifixion was. This is what the Romans thought of it. It was reserved for people who were not Roman, who were men who would rise up and pose any sort of threat at all because the Romans wanted supreme power over anyone. And this was how you squashed out everything that might come up against you. Put them on the cross and nothing else will follow. This is how we get rid of Jesus. It was extremely commonplace as well. We don't know how many people over the centuries that the Romans put on the cross and crucified. We have no idea. We do know and have accounts of sometimes over 500 people in a day being crucified by Romans. We also know when Spartacus, which we've probably all heard of and seen the movie and the show, um, when Spartacus rose up a rebellion of slaves against the Romans and they finally defeated him in 71 BC, they captured those who did not, who were not killed in the battle, over 6,000 men, and they crucified all of them at one time along one road from Rome to Capua. It's about 120 miles, a a two-hour modern-day drive. Can you imagine getting in your car and driving from Winston-Salem to Raleigh, North Carolina, and the whole drive there, you just see one man hanging on a cross after another man, after another man, after another man, and you see the pain and the anguish that they are going through. This is what the Romans used to have power over everyone. And they meant for it to be a heinous thing to see and to participate in. They did not want anyone rising up against their power. So thousands and thousands and thousands of men were crucified by the Romans. Yet, when we think about the cross, we do not think about the thousands. We do not think about the hundreds of thousands. We do not think about the supreme power of Rome. We think about one man and one man only, Jesus. Why does his name rise above all the others? Why is it today that we, somebody in this room, and over the last 2,000 years, the cross has become one of the most recognizable symbols in all. It's a fashion icon in all the world. It is the most recognized symbol. Why do we wear it on our necks? Somebody in here probably has it on their neck in silver or gold. Somebody's got it tattooed onto their body. Somebody has a picture of the cross hanging in their home. It's all over our churches. We have a a, a holiday that we call Good Friday, where we share the good news of a good event where Jesus hung on the cross. And next week, we'll discover exactly why all of that is taking place in detail, and all of that is a reality today. But the short answer to why the worst event in human history with the worst execution ever to be known to man is a symbol of beauty today and not of excruciating pain is that Jesus 
Jesus, the most important human being to ever walk the earth, hung on one with great purpose. It is the only reason that we look at it and call it good today, or that it is a fashion icon, or that we look at it not as something terrible, but as something good. It's been the symbol of Christianity. As we know, everything, every organization, every, every uh, company has a symbol that helps you identify who they are. And the cross has been the symbol of Christianity since about 100 years after Jesus, when Church Father Tertullian really put it into practice. But this was still, while crucifixion was one of the main ways of execution by the Romans. So the Christians, about 100 years after Jesus, where another 200 years would go by before crucifixion really began to to wane out amongst the Roman people. And even in the midst of Rome, while executions were taking place very regularly as a way to give maximum pain, maximum shame, and a deterrent to everyone, Christians began in the midst of all of that to say, the cross actually doesn't represent a deterrent for us not to worship Jesus, but the reason to lay down our lives and worship Jesus because he is the one who came to bring us the salvation that we long for, the life that we were created to know, the community with God that we're created to experience. Early followers, they did consider other things. They considered things like the dove because it represented peace or the rainbow because of what Jesus did in the flood or the bread and fish because of how he fed 5,000. They even thought about the rooster for a little bit because of how Peter heard a rooster crow when he denied Jesus. And it was to remind us, a symbol of Christianity, to remind us to walk in the truth and make sure we're going in the right direction in everything that we do in life. But ultimately, it had to be the cross. The fact that Jesus died on the cross and the implications that it brings, the true reality of what it is, it destined the cross to be the symbol that it is today. It is the true hinge point of all of human history. And what we do with the cross is the most important decision that we will ever make. Moore's Law says the information doubles about every two years, but we can't make sense of it. There's no foundation for it unless we see it in light of who God is and what he has done. The two questions that we've been looking at through the Gospel of Mark the entire time that we've been walking through it. And so this morning, I want us to see this passage. I want us to see it fresh and new. I want it to be new and stir our affections in a powerful way as we see Jesus die on the cross for our sin. How is this good news? How is it something that's beautiful? How is it something that's magnificent? How is it something that we look at where everything the Romans designed it to be, we no longer 2,000 years later look at it in that way at all? Completely reversed because of the work of Jesus. So look at Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And so just a tiny bit of backstory we'll see in just a moment uh, when we finish reading. But Jesus has just gone through his Jewish and and, uh, political trial, Jewish and Roman trial. He's been sentenced to crucifixion, and so now they're taking him to the cross. Verse 22, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them and deciding which each should take. And it was the third hour, nine o'clock, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. 
And when they crucified two robbers, one to his right and one to his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, and we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour came, 12 o'clock, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 o'clock. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the Roman soldier who stood facing him, saw that this was the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. As we get to this text and we see Jesus hanging on the cross and everything that we've seen to get to this point, and, and finally the centurion makes this, this confession, truly this is God, that we have known and seen since Mark chapter 1, verse 1, that this is the Messiah who has come, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And finally, finally we see the confession made. As Mark is writing predominantly to a Roman audience, and here the Roman soldier understands exactly who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And we got to this point as Jesus was, was going around and proclaiming who he was and, and teaching with authority and revealing himself through miraculous works. And then finally, Jesus is, is telling the disciples that he has got to go and pay the penalty for our sin, that he has lived the life that we couldn't live, that he will go to the cross. He foretells this, that he will rise from the dead. This is even uh, referred to in the text that we just read, even though they misunderstood Jesus talking about the temple that he would actually rise three days later and defeat sin and death so that we might, by his work through his grace, place our faith in his work on our behalf and have salvation. Nothing that we do, nothing that we have done. There's no other king like him. There's no other God like him. There's no other religion like him. He doesn't come and say, these are the things that you do to impress me. But he comes and says, you cannot do what is required to have salvation. And I, therefore, am doing it for you. And I will rise and I will offer salvation to you. He came to serve, not to be served. There's no other God that way. There's no other religion that way. He is the God who does the only thing that can actually save a people he created who rebelled against him. And he comes and says he is going to do these things. And then lo and behold, he goes on the Jewish trial and they, they trump up charges against him, but they can't find any witnesses to actually bear witness where stories match. And so all of the witnesses false witness. They accuse him of saying that he is God. They want, again, maximum punishment and, and deterrent from anybody following Jesus. They're thinking to themselves, if we can get Jesus on the cross, it's all over. And all they do is propel him to a higher stage where every people, every tribe, every tongue, we'll even see in our text in just a moment, they put him on a stage in front of all people to put on display that he is actually the king. And that's why we're here today. 
but they think we're going to get rid of him. We're going we're to suppress it. No one will follow him after this unless he is actually God, unless he actually rises from the dead, unless he actually offers salvation, which is exactly what he does. So he goes on Jewish trial. They take him to Pilate, and Pilate and Herod are in Jerusalem for the Passover week. And so they take him before Pilate, and Pilate sends him to Herod. Pilate wants nothing to do with it. Pilate sees that he is not guilty. Herod also sees that he is not guilty. So you have all of these false witnesses that are unnamed in Scripture, just passerbys, just people that the high priests and the religious leaders paid to bear false witness against Christ. But then you have Pilate and Herod, the highest two political leaders in all of Palestine in Jesus' day, and both of them bear witness that, that affirms the other that Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. They're the only two witnesses that agree in Jesus' entire trial, but all of the crowd wants Jesus to be crucified. They believe that he is going to overturn their power, and they convince Pilate that he is going to be treasonous and that he wants to reign and rule in some sort of earthly way. We talked about all of those things last week, but Pilate has one last-ditch effort to get out from under having to accuse Jesus and sentence him to death, and he decides that he is going to provoke a tradition that they do every Passover. I release one person to you from prison, and at that time, there was a man named Barabbas, and Barabbas was a known murderer and thief and insurrectionist. He was already on trial, had been sentenced, and he was going to the cross. So he thinks to himself, certainly, if I present Barabbas and Jesus, you will free Jesus. Barabbas is a murderer. Barabbas is a cheat. Barabbas is, is a menace to society. Jesus, what has he done but love and show compassion? We find no fault with him. He has done miracles. He has taught with authority. He has forgiven people. He has welcomed with open arms. He has done nothing. And Barabbas has done what represents every rebellious and sinful thing. But because of the pride in their hearts, they cry out for Barabbas' freedom. And Pilate washes his hands, but I don't want us to lose the significance here. He tries to wash his hands of Jesus, but ironically, he's the one that hands them over to be scourged and crucified. See, we cannot get away. We cannot wash our hands from our decisions and our rebellion and the things that we have done. There, there's no way for us to get out from under them on our own. We need a savior. We need someone to pay the penalty for us. And Pilate knows that better than anyone. But he hands him over to be scourged and crucified. And Mark, Mark doesn't give us much information about Jesus being scourged and the crucifixion. And he doesn't need to. There's two reasons that he does it. One, he wants to focus on why Jesus actually goes to the cross. Mark focuses much more on the shame than the pain. He wants the, the why behind it. But secondly, he also knows, as, as I said, he's writing this predominantly to a Roman audience in the first century, and they would be intimately aware of what a scourging and a crucifixion looks like. They have seen them their whole lives. They've participated in them. They've seen the gruesomeness. They understand the pain. And so Mark focuses on the shame and what Jesus is actually doing for us and them. 
But I want us, because we're not as familiar, and in fact, until the movie The Passion of the Christ came out, which even still, as gruesome as it is and as hard as it is to watch, and I've only seen it one time, that's how difficult it is to watch, it still waters down what actually took place. And, and until that came out, none of us really had any kind of idea of what Jesus actually went through. It was just kind of this pretty picture in a painting of him hanging on a cross, but I want us to be able to experience this this morning in the way that a first century reader would have experienced it. They didn't need to have all the details because they knew it. They would experienced it, but, but we don't. And, and so I want us to just walk through, as I said, the story as we just read it with a through, few theological implications to see what's taking place as we discover the why together. So I want us to see this. When Jesus was handed over to be scourged, I went over this really quickly last week, but, but what would take place is that a man would be put against a pole. If you think of the, the stand here as a pole, his back would be towards you, and he would be strapped around the pole, and then you would have two Roman soldiers who would stand on either side, typically. They would have what's commonly referred to as a cat of nine tails. There's nine straps of leather on this whip. On some of the straps of leather, you would have either a, a copper ball or a lead ball. Uh, that was meant to, to hit the back or to wrap around the front section of a man. And it was meant to tenderize the, the meat, the flesh. And then on the other straps of leather, you would have bone in the shape of a hook. And that was meant to dig into the tenderized flesh and to rip away the flesh. And if you read historically what took place in one of these scourgings, uh, you would see and you'd be able to read stories of how ribs were actually ripped out of, of men how bowels were spilled out, how, how they really just looked like a, a, a pound of meat instead of a human being when this had taken place to them. Jewish law would say that you can only, we read in Deuteronomy, whip someone 39 times. But as I mentioned last week, the Romans had no such law. And because of the Jewish law, oftentimes when you hear the story of Jesus, you'll hear that he was whipped 39 times. But the Romans did not have to adhere to that law. We don't know how many times Jesus was whipped. What we do know is in Isaiah 52, we are told that Jesus was unrecognizable as who he actually was, that his own mother would have had a difficult time telling who he actually was when he begins this trip in, in verse 21 to the cross to pay the penalty ultimately for our sin through his death, paying our atonement, sacrificing himself for us. We don't know what all would have taken place, but what we do know at this point is Isaiah 52 does tell us that he was beaten beyond human recognition, and we do know because of his trial that his beard had already been pulled out. That was prophesied in Isaiah 50. We do know that he was punched repeatedly, slapped, that his eyes were covered. He was punched and, told, and asked to prophesy who punched him. He was mocked as being king. His face was now swollen, his eyes potentially swollen shut, his beard pulled from his face, his midsection after scourging literally ripped to shreds, and so it is easy to see how someone would not be able to recognize him as the man that he was. This is what he would have been going through pain-wise 
as he goes to the cross, though there is a whole other aspect of the shame as people are mocking and people are calling him king of the Jews and prophesying who hit you and and everybody is watching and everybody there is cheering and and everybody's making a game out of it and they're casting lots over his things. And this is just meant to totally strip away anything of who he is and anything that he would have had and any power that he had in life. This is to say you are not any sort of king. You are not any sort of God. Let alone we know that Jesus is literally doing all of this on our behalf, that he has remained silent as though he is taking the place and being silent for another. We, we mentioned last week how all the time through his trial, he's, he's remaining silent as though he's standing up for another who is guilty. It's almost like he's, he's a father or a mother or has a loved one that he knows is guilty. And if he says anything on this trial where he stands in their place, then it would be to accuse them. And so he remains silent so that it would be, the the penalty would be put on him and not the one that he loves. And even as they're crying out for Barabbas to be set free, Jesus is silent. And in effect, what he is saying is, take me instead. This was the heart of Jesus. And he's realizing the, not only the pain and, and feeling the pain, but all of the shame that comes along with our rebellion and our sin, doing and paying the penalty for something that he did not do. But those who deserve it are people like us who have rebelled against God, who have sinned against him. And after all of this took place, Mark just simply says, and they led him away to be crucified. And I feel like that's such a, like a quick kind of like, we can just glance right over that little sentence. They led him away to be crucified. But I think that we really see something unique and beautiful about Jesus in that sentence. Because records tell us that men oftentimes, depending on how badly they were beaten and scourged, like men at this point, when they, when they really it sunk in that they were moving towards the cross, that their execution, the excruciating pain that came with it, the mocking and the shame, when they were moving towards the cross, they absolutely went crazy. And oftentimes, historically, men would have to be tied up and dragged like they were a dog to the crucifixion place, or they would have to be prodded like some sort of cattle to get them up the hill to Calvary. In anticipation of what was going to happen, they just couldn't handle it and they went crazy. But with with Jesus, it just says they led him and he went. They led him and he went. He went silently, as Isaiah 53, 7 says, as we've continued to go back to, like a lamb led to the slaughter. And all of this is taking place during Passover week. And Mark tells us the time that he went to the cross at 9. And and by 3 p.m., he cried out, it is finished. And at 3 p.m. was the exact time that the lambs at the temple would be crucified during Passover for for repentance of sin to cover the people for the year until the Messiah comes. And here is Jesus going silently like those lambs, though they had no idea what was going to take place to them. He knew everything from the beginning of all of creation, what he would have to do, and yet he silently goes because to say anything would be to accuse another, to accuse the ones he is actually going to the cross for. And I want us to notice in this moment, there's no panic in Jesus 
There's no mention of a struggle with Jesus. He, he just goes silently with purpose. And the purpose is to bring us our salvation, to pay the penalty of our sin. He knows that he's going to the cross. He had already gone to the Garden of Gethsemane. He'd already known about this plan from the beginning of time. He had already reconciled to his, his self that this is the only way. And so he is going to the cross silently like a lamb led to the slaughter. And he is going to bring us by his work through his grace salvation that there is no other way we could have participated in. There's no other way we could experience. And listen, we were created to know God. We were created to give him glory. We were created to experience joy in him and him alone, to understand who we are through the lens of who he's created us to be and what to do through the lens of what his purpose and his meaning for our lives and where we belong and what he has created us to be a part of. And without that, we are confused. We are, we are seeking. We're searching. We're desperate. We're afraid. We're fearful. We're anxious. We're depressed. Only in him do we know who we are and this is what Jesus was accomplishing so that every fear that you have everything that you're searching for everything you long for every desire of your heart could be realized not in a thing that he created but in the God he created you to have communion with this is what he was doing with no panic no struggle they told him where to walk, and he walked. They told him where to kneel, and he kneeled. They told him where to put his hands, and he put them there. His feet, and he put them there. All for our salvation. They murdered him, but make no mistake, John tells us, no one takes up his life. He laid it down on our behalf. And not only because he was God did he know what was coming, but also because he lived a life knowing what was coming. He knew exactly the pain that he would have to go through, the shame that he would have to experience. There's records of, of mass crucifixions taking place in a town near Jesus where he grew up in 4 AD. Jesus would have been five, six, seven years old, and potentially this is the first exposure maybe he had to crucifixion, knowing what it is as God and the theological implications of what he was coming to do, but, but experiencing it as a man for the very first time, five, six, seven-year-old. Imagine him walking with his father, Joseph, home from carpentry and working with stone and, and just seeing man after man after man hang on a cross, and, and maybe Joseph tries to cover his eyes and protect him, having no idea that this was the fate of his son. This is why he has come. But, but Jesus, a five, six-year-old, knows exactly what he's saying. This is what I have come to do. He knows the theological implication that he will take upon sin, that, that God's face will be turned away, that darkness will fall over everything, and he will experience the full shame of our sin, and he knows exactly the pain that he will go through, yet he just walks without question. They led him and he went all for us. He would travel about a mile down the road called the Via Della Rosa. You can go there today and walk it yourself from the praetorium where he was uh, sentenced all the way to the hill called Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull. 
Traditionally and historically, we know that this is Mount Moriah. This is where Abraham actually was told by God to travel with his son Isaac, who would be the the future of the tribes of the Israelite people, that the Messiah would come through. And and God tells Abraham to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and to take him to the top and to crucify him or to, to sacrifice him. And just before Abraham sacrifices him, God speaks up and says, don't do it and provides a lamb or a goat in the thicket to sacrifice for the sins of the people until the Messiah would come. One day, Jesus would come to pay this penalty for sin once and for all. And here he is, the lamb on the same hill, Golgotha. As he walks up the hill, he would have to carry his crossbar. His crossbar would weigh about 100 pounds. The the stipe or the post that goes into the ground would remain there. It was reused over and over and over. But the men would have to carry the crossbar. Their hands would be tied to it until it was nailed when they got to the top of the the hill. But they would have to carry it on their shoulders, a 100-pound crossbar. Jesus, already been scourged and beaten, though very tough, I don't want us to have this opinion of Jesus that he wasn't this tough man with callous hands. He, he had worked in carpentry his whole life. He is a, he is a, a man, a tough man. He's a hard worker. But, but after going through all of these things, he falls under the weight. Doctors who have studied this say that falling under this in this way with that crossbar that weighs 100 pounds on your arms without being able to catch yourself would be like being in a high-speed automobile accident. And if you were to hit your chest onto the ground, it could cause a bruised heart or internal bleeding. It was clear that he couldn't continue from that point. And so Mark tells us that there was a man named Simon of Cyrene that just happened to be walking by. He was trying to kind of get through the crowd and, and trying to make his way. We don't know if he knew who Jesus was. We don't know if he was there to watch. We don't know if he was participating in the bets. We have no idea what he was doing, but he didn't know who Jesus was. All he knows is Jesus is someone who's being crucified, not somebody that you want to follow, or this would happen to you. He is experiencing pain and shame. He is someone that you don't want to be around, but he's passing by, and they grab him and say, you need to carry Jesus's cross. We know that he's from Cyrene. That's modern-day Libya. Again, real places, real people, true stories. This is the reality. This is what Jesus has done for us. And then Mark says that he had two sons with him. And and it kind of seems weird. It's like really random that Mark mentions Simon from Cyrene. He wants us to know exactly where he's from. And then his sons are Alexander and Rufus. And and that wouldn't mean very much to us. We could just kind of read that and go on by. But I think that Mark does this because, again, he's writing to a Roman audience. And Romans, when they're reading this in the first century, they might not have been familiar with Simon. He wasn't from the area. He was passing through. But, But his sons they might be familiar with. Because whatever happens to Simon in this moment, he passes on to his sons. And we actually see later in Romans, as Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans 16, 13, he mentions Rufus as a leader in the church of Rome. So it seems in this moment that Jesus changes everything for this man named Simon. He's just passing through. He doesn't know who Jesus is. All he knows is Jesus is cursed, that Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to experience maximum pain and suffering. But as he's walking by, he gets pulled in to carry Jesus's cross. And he has no intention of meeting Jesus that day. But Jesus has every intention. This is why he came. And even while he dies on a cross, he does what he came to do. And so he has the intention of meeting Simon that day. 
We don't know if he said anything to him. We don't know if he made eye contact with him and said something through that eye contact as, as he does with Peter, as Peter is, is denying him. We don't know if everything that he saw in the character of Jesus and how he carried himself and how he was silent and everything he did, we don't know if that caused question in Simon's heart, where afterwards he began to ask around about Jesus. We have no idea, but all we do know is that as he saw Jesus, he understood that everything is not as meets the eye. This is not a normal man. This is not somebody that Rome typically puts on a cross. And I don't know everything about him, but I know he doesn't deserve this. And I need to investigate this. And, and this man places his faith in this one who is being crucified and who is who's being crucified in a way that should be a deterrent to all people. But yet when he faces the cross and pays the penalty for our sin, it is clear as we will see to all who see that this man is the son of God. And Simon would pass this on to his children. I, I don't want to uh, pass by this. I just want to say this really quickly because this dad, and I, I say that on purpose, he suddenly understands that this Jesus is who he says he is and is doing what he said he would do. And, and I just want you to imagine just for a moment Seeing Jesus as Simon saw Jesus. Look at the life of Jesus. We've said that Jesus lived with compassion. He gave hope. He expressed love and forgiveness. He did miraculous things to heal. He taught with authority. He accepted. He transformed lives. He brought hope and faith and joy and peace and love. Look what he did before the guards. He was completely silent, on trial, completely silent, as though on behalf of another who we would see to be people like Barabbas and people like us. Look at what he does with Peter when Peter betrays him and he receives him back as Peter repents and he tells Peter to go out and, and the, the truth that Peter knows will be the rock of the church and, and he calls him to go out on mission and the church begins there with Peter and the disciples. Look at Jesus as he walks to the cross. Look at Jesus the way Simon saw Jesus. And then you'll see the same Jesus Simon saw. Jesus saying, I'm broken so that you can be whole. Jesus saying, I am bloody so that you can be forgiven. Jesus saying, I'm unrecognizable so that you can be known by the Father. I'm in excruciating pain so that you can experience the pleasure of my kingdom. I am dying so that you might have life through my work. And I know that what he looks like in this moment we will see that he is who he says he is and he has come to do what he says he would do. As Galatians 3.13 says, that he became our curse. He took our sin and our debt and our penalty so that we might receive his righteousness by his grace. This is the great exchange. This is everything we're looking for. This is everything that when we rebelled against God, we have been searching for in all of creation. And Jesus here supplies it to us by his work on our behalf. That is what Simon sees. And that's what he and why he believes.
And that's why he passes it down. I want you to know today that every decision that you make, and, and certainly the decision you make about Jesus and the cross, the most important decision that you will make in all of your life, it is not just a decision for you. The way that you live, the decisions that you make, it will affect others. It will reveal something of truth or a lie to everyone that is around you, where you live and where you work and where you play, and certainly, as with Simon, to your children, if God blesses you with any. Nothing that you do is just about you. And I know in our world and our culture today, it's so taboo to say all of life and every decision that you make should only be with your best interest at heart. And how dare we say someone else should be of importance to you over yourself. But I want to tell you something. Life is not about you. And as long as you think it is primarily about you, you will feel the way that you feel when you have that desire. You will feel empty. You will feel hopeless. You will feel helpless. You will feel scared. You will feel anxious. And you will try anything that will stick that gives you a little bit of satisfaction. And you will think just a little bit more, just a little bit farther, but you're going in the wrong direction. You were not created for yourself. You were created for the glory of God. And until you give glory to him in everything that you do first and your desires to reveal him to everyone he puts in your path, then you will not experience the joy you were created to experience. It all begins with him. And so Simon passes it down to his children and they become leaders in the church. Finally, Jesus makes it to the place where he is going to die. Someone offers him a drink. It's wine mixed with myrrh. It's a painkiller. And Jesus rejects it. And he rejects it because Jesus needs to feel. He, he needs to be there. He, he wants to feel the full pain that our sin brings and the full shame that our sin brings of all the rebellion. And he needs to be conscious. He says seven things while he's on the cross, all full of grace and all full of mercy. And he needs to be all there to be able to say them. And then he continues to reveal who he is as a savior while he is there, even with the two thieves that are next to him. And he needs to be able to do that. And so he rejects the painkiller. They lay him on the cross. They put nails in his hands and his feet that are four to eight inches long. And the cross would be lifted up off of the ground and dropped into a hole that would jar the whole body of the one hanging on the tree. The idea is that you would die of asphyxiation, that you would have to kind of lift yourself up through all the pain to breathe, and then you would let yourself back down and relax, and then you have to lift yourself back up to breathe again. This could last for sometimes over a week. There was one that I found that lasted nine days. The idea was, it was pain and mockery and day after day. And, and typically we think of a crucifixion on the cross as happening. And we see this pretty picture of this tall cross on a hill. Nobody's around it. But more often than not, the cross would actually be extremely short. If your legs, if your feet were not actually nailed into it, you could have just stood there. This was so Roman soldiers could adjust things and fix things that needed to be fixed, but also so that people could come by and mock you face to face, and wild animals could come by and have their way with the lower half of your body. 
This is what would happen on the cross, and it could take day after day after day. We will see with Jesus, it only takes six hours because Jesus does not actually die of asphyxiation. He dies from taking on our sin. The penalty of sin is death from the very beginning of sin. And when Jesus takes it all on, he cries out, it is finished. And when it is finished, he has taken the sin of our rebellion on. He dies from our sin. He gives up his life. He doesn't have to die of asphyxiation, but that was the idea. So here is God who has come to heal and to bring salvation now naked and hanging on a cross and there's a sign over his head that says King of the Jews and it was written in three different languages. Aramaic, Greek, and Latin, again, for all people with every tribe and every language and Jesus is put on this stage where all can know he is truly who he says he is. He did truly come to set his people free. But they wrote this to ridicule him. How ridiculous is it that a homeless man, a virgin with no heir, no kingly attributes to to his name, could claim to be king, let alone God? He hangs cursed on a tree. Even the religious leaders get into it, and they're mocking him too. And they're going, Jesus, if you would just get off the cross and save yourself, we would believe. Just let us see, and we would believe. But, But in reality... By him not getting off the cross, we can actually see that he is God. By him hanging on the tree, by him not saving himself, he saves us. He could not save himself and us. And so he stays there. The two thieves, Mark says, also were mocking him. As, as, and, but suddenly one of them realizes as there was a man on the right and the left, and they really demonstrate to us and reveal to us Humanity, and we have two options when we come into the reality and the truth of Jesus. One of them notices Jesus is not mocking as everybody else would be mocking and trying to get back at those who were cursing them and spitting on them. And, and one finally turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, we do remember me in your kingdom today. When you, are, when you are in your kingdom, would you remember me? And Jesus looks to him and says, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus reveals these two options that, one, he has come to save. And even while he's hanging on the cross, he, he, he is willing and able and desires to save us if we would place our faith in him and repent and, and trust in his work for us. But we also see that there are two options when we are presented with the truth of who Jesus is. We can mock him or we can place our faith in him. This man hears the seven things that Jesus says. Things like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he doesn't mock, but he surrenders. And we have that opportunity with all of our lives. If you've never placed your faith in him, you have that opportunity today. If you are a follower of him, you have the opportunity to make it the thing in which drives everything that you are so that you might reveal joy in everything that you do. Then quickly, after he was hanging there for three hours, darkness fell over all of the land. It got completely dark. Just imagine how terrifying that would be. Now, historically, we know that around the time, maybe Jesus and some archaeologists and theologians believe that Jesus actually died on a specific day because we know that the eclipse happened. But this is, this is so much deeper than an eclipse. C.J. Mahaney, a pastor, said this is atmospheric evidence that Jesus is taking God's judgment for sin on himself for us. 
The darkness represents the darkness of sin and and it being taken on Jesus for us. And so for the whole length of a football game, it was completely dark representing the sins of our lives. All that had been and all that would come. And this was certainly the hardest part for Jesus. This is what Mark focuses in on, the shame that Jesus would feel because this is where Jesus feels the separation from the Father. And, and even in this moment when Jesus cries out to God, he doesn't say the familiar thing that we hear from him or the way that he tells us to even pray when he teaches us to pray in Matthew chapter 6. He doesn't say, my Father, but he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And because of the love of God for us to take on our sin, the world goes dark to represent the darkness of our sin. And never has it been more true or should we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Listen, Jesus was forsaken in this moment so you could be accepted. He was tormented so that you might have heavenly peace. He experienced our grief so that we might have eternal joy. He took on God's wrath for our sin so we might experience God's love and be called sons and daughters. The last thing that I want us to see of what happens here is that Jesus actually accomplishes everything that he said he came to accomplish. And in this story, even just what we just read, it looks like he's being crucified, he's being murdered, Jesus is losing. The God who says he came to save us has actually just died. But even in the midst of it, and next week we'll see his, his power over sin and death, but even in the midst of what Jesus does here on the cross, he actually saves at least a representation from every single group of people that put him on the cross. First, he saves Simon. A Gentile man that's just from the crowd. And secondly, he saves the one who hung next to him, a Jewish rebel. And then thirdly, we see in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, is all of the religious leaders and, and, and the, the high priests and everybody who's seeing and mocking Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. They, they take everything that Jesus has done on the cross and they see the resurrection. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, it tells us that the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great number of priests became followers of Jesus. And then finally, here we see in the last verse, verse 39, the Roman soldier who executed him. Jesus cries out with his final breath, it is finished. It is finished. The, the people were all mocking, and as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People think that maybe he's calling for Elijah, and they try to offer him another drink. But ultimately, as the darkness is there, and he's taking on the sin, it came a point where he took on the sin of all those who had placed their faith in him. He paid the penalty of the darkness, and after three hours, it says he breathed his last, and with his last breath, he cried out in triumphant victory with his last breath, it is finished. I did what I came to do. And Mark says, the veil of the temple was torn. And I love how he puts this detail in. From top to bottom, 
supernatural thing just happened, and we have full access to the God who created us. We no longer have to go to a place. We no longer have to make sacrifices because God himself came, and Jesus is the mediator between us and the Father, and in him we can have life, and we can have salvation, and we can have joy, and we can have community with him, and he comes to live and dwell in us, and so now we can be his sons and daughters and experience his love and know who we are and what to do and where we belong. And as he hangs there, the Roman soldier looks up at him, sees how he dies, and says, truly, this is God. Truly, this is God. What do you think of when you look at the cross? What do you think of when you look at the cross? There are two options. You can join in the mocking or you can place your faith in his work and his grace.